Hi, this is Nathan. Before we get to the episode, I want to invite you to join me on an incredible adventure this November of 2024. I am taking a small group of believers to Turkey, what the New Testament called Asia Minor, for a 12-day Bible study tour of the early church. We'll be studying the book of Acts and many of the epistles on location as we visit ancient cities like Ephesus, Laodicea, Heropolis, Antioch, Pergamum, and many more. If you are interested in joining me this November for a once-in-a-lifetime adventure as we study where much of the New Testament and early church took place, you can learn more by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. And if you're interested, don't delay. Spots are limited and on a first-come, first-served basis, and a $100 discount is available if you register before May 27th. I do hope you can join me. And again, more information is available at deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. Now, here's the episode. Welcome to episode 92 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want to look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, and talk about the name of Jesus Christ. Let's dive in. Well, we're officially past Thanksgiving and we're heading toward Christmas. And this tends to be a very busy season, which is almost ironic because this really should be the the season that we slow down and actually ponder Jesus all the more. And yet in the midst of the hustle and the bustle and the consumerism that that we, at least in the United States, live in, we can easily become distracted from that which is very central, especially in this season, which is supposed to be Jesus Christ. Well, I thought it would be fun for these next two weeks to have like a mini series where I bring in a good friend and mentor of mine named Stephen Manley and let you hear two of his sermons on this idea of Jesus becoming a little child. Now, this comes from a series that he preached. This is right after the genealogy that Matthew records. And verse 21 says this, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, using that passage, Stephen Manley dives into this idea of the name of Jesus Christ. I hope this is an encouragement and refresher and a reminder that in this season, Jesus and the fullness of all that he has done and accomplished is to be our focus. So here's a sermon by Stephen Manley called The Name. So we're going to begin reading uh, at Matthew uh, chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading at verse 18. And verse 18 is the, the beginning of the narratives that he wants to give to us. And I want to read verse 18 and read down through verse 22 where he gives us a powerful, powerful statement that I'd like to uh, analyze tonight with you. So we're looking at chapter 1 of the book of Matthew, uh, verse 18. He says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his, mother was betro- after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Verse 21 again. And she will bring forth a son, and you will, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I want to pray with you. Uh, Jesus, could I grasp you in a new way? I have a new understanding of you. Could the word of God somehow speak to me tonight? And in the living word and the written word coming together to speak to me, could I see you as maybe I've never seen you before? Would you, would you take me deeper into what you're all about? In this very, very simple statement, of the purpose for your coming. Would you so grab a hold of me? Would you so yank me in the middle of it? Would you help me to step out of using you into being available to be used by you? Would you do something so deep within me, Jesus, that I would be able to be a vessel through which you could flow even in pain and suffering, even in cross-style to my world? I'm asking you to do that in my life tonight. Take your word and make it alive to me. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. You know that Matthew starts out in chapter 1 with this tremendous genealogy. In fact, it goes from verse 1 clear down through verse 17. Actually, it goes to verse 16 and verse 17 is a summary of the entire genealogy. And he does that because he needs to answer right off, right up front, this great question that's in the mind of every Jew concerning the, the genealogy of any individual who would claim to be a Messiah. Because if you were going to claim to be a Messiah, the first test, absolute first test, before you get any place, you have to prove that you are in the lineage of David, King David, and have the right to sit on the throne. And so Matthew's saying, hey, let's get that under our belt. Let's get that issue settled. Get that out of your mind. So he gives this powerful genealogy, which again goes from verse 1 down through verse 17, and traces the lineage of Jesus right straight through David and says, hey, Jesus meets the qualification so we can quit thinking about that. However, as you look at this genealogy, you immediately, immediately begin to understand that it is a legal genealogy because he comes right up at the end of the genealogy in verse 16 and says, hey, when you get right down to it, Joseph didn't have a thing to do with this after all. He was just the legal father of Jesus and adopted Jesus. Thus, his genealogy counts, but he wasn't the natural father of Jesus. And he leaves, this, he leaves you in the genealogy at the end of it, just kind of dangling with this overwhelming question. Well, then, who is the father of Jesus Christ? So then he moves into these four narratives. And it's really interesting in the original language of the Bible, the Greek language. He starts every one of these narratives with a particular conjunction. And uh, it's translated in my translation now, but I notice in other translations there are a variety of uh, things that, uh, words that are used for that conjunction. But every single one of these narratives starts with this same conjunction. The first narrative is given to you in verse, begins at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And then he gives this narrative concerning Joseph that we're going to try to deal with. The second narrative is given in chapter 2, verse 1, where he begins and says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and then goes on to tell the story of the wise men coming into Jerusalem and the upset of Herod and all Jerusalem with him and that whole scene. And then the, the third narrative is given in verse 13 of chapter 2. He says, Now when they had departed. 
See, the wise men were warned by God to go in a different direction when they went home and not to go back to Herod. And so they had left. And then the angel came and appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him to pack his bags and get his family together and head for Egypt land because there was danger involved. So they did it that very night. And then there's that whole scene where the uh, children, the, that is the boys, were slaughtered in Bethlehem and all the surrounding districts. And then the fourth narrative begins at verse 19. Now when Herod was dead, so some time had passed, you know, and now it was safe for uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus to come back to uh, Palestine. And of course they went back to Nazareth and became Nazarenes, which we won't get into tonight, of course. But you back up to verse 18, and uh, it's the first narrative. Now he's given this legal genealogy of Jesus and it's very significant tracing the lineage of Jesus right straight through David giving him the right to sit on the throne. But he says after all Joseph didn't have a thing to do this with it, with this so I really need to give you the natural genealogy the natural father genealogy of Jesus and he says it won't take long so in verse 18 he makes this bold statement and says Jesus was born of God. Yes, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And if you want to know who the natural father of Jesus is, it's God the Father himself. For all of this is coming from the act of the Holy Spirit who overshadowed Mary. It's a phenomenal statement. Mary, when she had heard the news that she was going to be with child, uh, wanted to tell somebody about that kind of thing, but who could she tell in this kind of situation? So she went down to uh, Elizabeth, her cousin, to tell her, who was already with child, John the Baptist. And the scripture says that when she walked into the presence of uh, Elizabeth and gave greetings, that the babe in, Mary, in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy. John the Baptist was going to be born. They had fellowship for three months. Mary stayed down there during all that time. At the end of the three months, she came back to uh, Nazareth area where she was from and Joseph was from. And when she got back... Uh, evidently, she didn't go and tell Joseph any of this. Uh, she didn't try to defend herself. She didn't try to explain. And she was already giving physical evidence to the announcement that the angel had made about what was going to happen to her. And you can imagine how the rumors began to float all over town. And everybody was talking about it. And obviously, those rumors were going to reach Joseph. Uh, he probably checked the whole thing out to be sure that it was really all the truth. And when he was sure it was really the truth, he found himself in an overwhelming dilemma. What's he going to do with this? Hey, obviously, I mean, the only conclusion you could come to is Mary has been unfaithful. She's had an affair. She's an adulteress. Hey, this is, this is immoral. She can't do this. This isn't right. She's destroyed the whole thing. The intimacy that she was to have with Joseph and Joseph alone has now been destroyed. So what's he going to do about it? Or if he did the thing he was supposed to do about it, they would go down to the magistrates at the city gates and he would report the whole thing to them and they would drag Mary in and they would see the evidence and investigate the case and find out it's all true and then they would stone her to death on the spot and that would end that. But hey, Joseph, he was a just man. He didn't want to do that. What a mess that kind of thing was. He decided just to, just to divorce her privately. It has the same results, you understand, only it's spread out over a period of time. Your life would be ruined, you know. She never would be able to marry. Hey, the reputation, oh, the peer pressure of the whole thing. Hey, it would be a disaster for her life. But what else can he do? He can't, there's no way to reconcile the relationship at this point. So he's in this overwhelming dilemma of what to do. He decides to choose the lesser of two evils. Goes to bed that night. Ah, uh, look at verse 20. 
And while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. <laughs> Isn't that neat? An angel of the Lord. Don't go over that statement lightly. An angel of the Lord. Matthew really makes a point of that, you know. An angel of the Lord. In fact, in these four narratives, he uses this phrase, angel of the Lord, four distinct times. For instance, you'll see it in chapter 2. Yeah, chapter 2, verse 13. Oh, it's in verse 12. Well, it's not exactly in verse 12, but it says in verse 12 of chapter 2, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. It's the wise men. But you see, the whole context is there that they were divinely warned. Well, everybody else was divinely warned in a dream by an angel of the Lord. So you would assume that that's true here. And right after they had departed, behold, this angel of the Lord in verse 13 is mentioned again. And when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Hey, I want you to pack your bags and get your family out of here and go to Egypt land. So the angel of the Lord is mentioned there. It's interesting in verse 19, chapter 2, the angel of the Lord is mentioned again. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and told him, hey, it's fine. You can go back now. You can head back to Palestine. In this first narrative that we're dealing with, the angel of the Lord is mentioned twice. It's in this verse 20 that we're dealing with. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And, and then he reminds you of that as if he says, you've got to be sure and get this. And he moves you into verse 24 and says, then Joseph being aroused from sleep did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. See, this angel of the Lord seems to be important. It has great value in the message that's being delivered. And the value is this in the importance of what's really taking place. Because you see, the angel of the Lord, well, there's a hierarchy among angels. You can study all this yourself, and nobody wants to be dogmatic about it. But you begin to discover that there's a hierarchy in this whole angel business. And if the angel of the Lord was the top level, uh, you know, when your boss stomps into your office, leans over your desk, looks you right in the eye and tells you something, man, you move on it, don't you? Because this is really, really important. If he gets on the telephone and calls you, you say, well, yeah, I'll get to it this afternoon. If he sends you a memo, you still know it's important, but hey, it'll wait till tomorrow morning. If he sends his secretary, you'll probably wait till next week. If the janitor who's emptying the wastebaskets in your, in your office casually says to you, I was talking to your boss and he suggested you might try so-and-so, you probably never will do it. But when the boss comes in and he stands and he looks, you see, this is really, that's the kind of value he's putting on this. See, this is not a memo. This is not some kind of, uh, this is not the janitor giving you some, no, this is an angel of the Lord. This is the top level. It gives you the value of what's really going on here, of the significance of what's happening. See, when you go back to the Old Testament, there's the angel of Jehovah or Yahweh. And then as you move into the New Testament, it comes up with this angel of the Lord. And they seem to be the same. It wasn't exactly that when an angel of the Lord showed up that God was in that form. It's not that the angel of the Lord was God dressed up in angelic form so he could be seen. It isn't that. An angel of the Lord was a distinct angel all in his own right. But there was some kind of 
some kind of merging, some kind of merging of, of the Spirit of God and the angel in the appearance of the angel of the Lord. It was almost a foretaste of what was going to take place in our lives in the fullness of the Spirit. So that when an angel of the Lord appeared, somehow there was a merging of the presence of God with that angel to the extent that, hey, the presence of God was on the scene. So that when the angel of the Lord spoke, it was God who was speaking. When the angel of the Lord moved, it was God who was moving. When the angel of the Lord gave instruction, it was God giving instruction. So see what Matthew is emphasizing is, hey, this thing is so valuable. This, this happening is so significant that what's going on here is it really requires the actual presence of God on the scene. That God Himself has come in His divine presence to administrate, to protect, because this is the redemption of the world. And what's going on in the life of Jesus Christ and the birth of Jesus Christ has supreme significance and God Himself has come to supervise. Now the reason I've gone through all of that is because of verse 21. Now the angel of the Lord, the presence of God, the speaking of God through the angel, gives Joseph particular personal instruction of what to do in verse 20. But then as he gets that personal instruction done, he goes on to give this, this verse 21. And what a statement it is. Look at this thing. And she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Spoken by God himself through the angel of the Lord. She will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God has delivered this message. And this verse 21 is almost like a, it's almost like a slogan. It's almost like a, a summary statement. It's almost like if you didn't know any of the rest of the book of Matthew, but you had verse 21, you'd have it all. It's like he's taken the whole gospel account and just literally wrapped it together into, in, in, in one single divine statement. Who could do that but God? And lays it all out. It's as if the whole purpose of what Jesus is all about is spelled out in one single verse. One, one great statement. Everything Jesus is going to accomplish is all wrapped up here. The total focus of this, of this movement of Christ, this, this Messiah happening is, is all to put together in one single statement. Verse 21. What a statement. Oh, there's so much detail to it, we can't get to all of it. But I want to focus on this tonight. She will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Oh, I want to tread lightly here. We have a lot of songs about his name, don't we? Jesus. There's something about that name. And the name is very precious to most of us. And I don't want to undermine that at all. So I want to tread very lightly here. But I want you to go back with me to the early church day. I want you to go back to me when the hour, and during the hour that this was written. I want you to go back where this was actually happening and see if you can, see if you can get a hold of this with me. I've been struggling with this. One thing I want you to note for sure is that this name, Jesus, was a common name. Oh, what do you mean by a common name? Well, you know, Joe, Sam, Sarah, 
Jane, Jesus. Do you understand in New Testament day, this was a common, common name. That the name Jesus as given right here in this verse in the original language of the Bible is really a transliteration of the Hebrew word Joshua. It's a sentence name. That is, the definition is Yahweh saves. So you can see why he is to be called Jesus, for it fits into the whole purpose of what's going on in verse 21. But it was a, it was a common, ordinary name. There were lots of people in Jesus' day who were called Jesus. You understand? Common, common name. Not unusual to name your child Joshua or Jesus. Common, common name. You understand, and I'm sure you've studied this yourself, you understand in an Old Testament that uh, the name of God was so special and so sacred and they, they had such reverence for the name of God that they wouldn't pronounce that name. It couldn't, it couldn't come from their lips. It was so sacred. For instance, in church when they would be reading the Scriptures and the priest would come across the name God in the Scripture, the name of God in the Scripture, he wouldn't pronounce that. No, no. He would substitute my Lord for that name. Because it was just, even in a religious setting, even in a prayer setting, even, even when you're reading the Holy Word of God, he, he could not mention that name. It was just too sacred to be spoken. It, it couldn't be on your lips. Oh, can you see a man on the street? Smashed his thumb, things aren't going well. And, and in a fit of anger, he takes the name of God in vain. Oh, you know what was to happen immediately? Everybody around him was to grab stones and stone him to death. Listen, if the name of God was so sacred, you couldn't even mention it in a religious setting, in a spiritual happening, in the reading of the Scriptures. Good night, a guy on the street in profanity, mentioning the name of God, he should be stoned to death immediately. And so they would. It was just that sacred. The name of God could not be mentioned, folks. It was sacred. But you see with this Jesus... There's a complete, a complete shift taking place. For the name of Jesus is a common name. See, the name of Jesus is on the lips of every individual. The name of Jesus is going to be spread all around the world and everybody's going to talk about His name. Oh, there's going to be thousands of songs written about His name. You see, there's going to be people everywhere who are going to, who are going to speak the name of Jesus. It's going to be spoken casually. It's going to be on the radio. It'll come across the TV. You'll read it in the newspaper. Everybody's going to be talking about the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is going to be given in, in connection with miracles. It's going to be given in connection with casting out demons. The sea is going to grow calm at His name. Hey, nature is going to bow at his feet, at his name, his name. It's going to be everywhere. It's going to be worldwide, widespread, known by everywhere. Everyone, God-seeable and God-knowable is all wrapped up in this, this, this name, Jesus, and it's going to be common, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, used often. A complete, absolute shift. You see, the name of Jesus is a common, common name. In Bible context, for instance, the very Greek word that's translated here, Jesus, oh, it's given also in Acts chapter 7, verse 45. 
Stephen is preaching and he's preaching to the council that is the leaders of Israel and as he's talking to them he's giving them Jewish history you know and as he's walking them through Jewish history he uses this name to refer to who? Oh, Joshua. It's the same identical Greek word. You remember the book of Hebrews. The writer of the Hebrews is talking to us in chapter 4 about the rest that comes to the people of God. And as he's talking about that, he says, Your forefathers missed it. The forefathers did not receive the rest that is given to the people of God. And then he mentions this identical same name. I'm talking the same identical Greek word that's translated Jesus in verse 21. It's translated in Hebrews 4, 9 as Joshua. See, this, this is a common, common common name. It wasn't until about the early part of the second century that everybody quit using the name, that you quit naming your kids Jesus. Hey, nobody used the name anymore. Why? Because Christianity had swept the countryside and the name had been elevated and it became sacred and nobody wanted to use that name. But you see, in Bible context, this is a common name. Jesus took on a common, common name. I know you're wondering why I'm ranting and raving about that. Oh, it's because of this. See, this name is not only a common name, it's a costly name. You see, what this is all about is that God has leaped out of the sky and He's become, He's become one of us and taken on our kind of name common name. See, he wasn't set apart. He joined us in our lot. Yeah, Sam, Joe, John, Sarah, Jane, Jesus. Common, common name. Interesting. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, as he begins the genealogy, he starts like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You know the word Christ. The word Christ is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Messiah. So when you say Christ, when you say Messiah in Hebrew, you say Christ in the Greek, and it's the same thing. So what you're talking about is the anointed one. And that's his official title, Christ, Messiah, Deliverer, Anointed One. But this name Jesus, this name Jesus is his personal name. And it was a common name. See, it identifies him as one of us. It speaks to us about all of that all that went on in terms of human identification, that He has joined us, He's taken on our flesh, He's walked where we walk. In fact, you'll note in verse 21, it even assigns a cause. Did you see the word for? Verse 21, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call His name Jesus for... Now the word for there means it signs a cause or asks the question, why? Why should you call his name Jesus? And what's the answer? He will save his people from their sins. Did you note the phrase, his people? See, it's not the people of the world he's going to save. It's not people of every generation that's mentioned. It's his his people. Oh, the people of the world are His people. Why? Because He has a common name and has joined us and has taken on our flesh and has literally become one with us. Now, I know you've walked through all of this. I know you understand all of this. God becoming flesh. But here's what got me about the name. 
everything, think about this, everything that distinguishes God from us, he set aside. Even down to the name. Everything that makes God different than us, he emptied himself of. Everything that makes God a cut above us, somehow he stripped himself of. See, the cost of taking on our name, the cost of taking on the common name was that he was going to literally set aside anything that made him different from us so that there would be no difference. He was going to become one of us and we were going to become one with him. And somehow in the name it all comes together because it's in the emptying of himself and the great cost that's involved in that. When I began to think these thoughts, I said, Oh, you've go you're going too far, Manly. You're going too far. When you say things like, Everything that distinguishes God apart from us, he, he set aside. When you say things like, Everything that makes God different from us, He set aside until there was no difference between us and Him. You've gone too far when you say stuff like that. After all, Jesus never sinned. That made him different than us. But wait a minute, wait a minute. That's what hit me hard. Because you see, yes, while he never committed a sin. What do you think this was all about? See, this cross thing was all about somehow he so joined me that he took on my sin as if it were his own. You understand that. That it wasn't that my sin was like a load upon his back. It, was, it wasn't that my sin was like a, a backpack that he strapped and carried around for a while. No, it's that he sucked into himself all, all that all the rot and filth that I am and that I've become. And he literally became my sin as if he had done it himself. Until when this Jesus is finished, folks... He has a common name and there is no difference between me and him anymore. For everything that distinguishes God from me, he removed from himself and became absolutely, totally what I am. And I invite you tonight to go to the street. I invite you tonight to find the worst individual you can find. I invite you tonight to find the one who's fried his brain on drugs. I want you to go and dig out the and root out the, 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 the wino, uh, the drunkard, the alcoholic. I want you to get a hold of this, the sexual perverted individual the dregs of society and I will show you the man that Jesus became that's what this cost him because there could be no redemption without that see this was not token this was not put your toe in the water this was jump in whole hog see this was be covered with he joined us even down to the name. Do you see that? He joined us even down to the name. And all that could not be contained within the union of God and man was set aside. All that could not be contained in becoming one of us, he eliminated from himself. He set aside everything that was necessary that he might embrace us as brothers. And he took on a common name, Jesus, because... the only way he could redeem me and it was at great cost see it's a common name it's a costly name 
But there's something else in verse 21 about the name. It's a crushing name. I don't know how to tell you this. Maybe this won't be too encouraging to you after you've had a hard day. But you see, what I'm discovering is that the minute God leaps off of his throne and empties himself and takes on a common name, one of our names, the minute he does that, and the minute he sets aside everything that distinguishes him from us and joins us so much that he literally takes on our sin and joins us in our sin to redeem us from our sin, the minute that takes place, the minute that takes place, there is some kind of, there is some kind of response that has to happen. There's some kind of war that's proposed out of that. There's some kind of upheaval that that creates some kind of natural disturbance that things can't just go along when that happens. Oh, you see it indicated in the verse. Look at verse 21. And she will bring forth a son. The words will bring forth that's one word in the original language of the Bible. It's talking about birth, I know. But the interesting thing is that that word that's used right there, that Greek word that's used right there, translated will bring forth, it's not used, up, has not been used up to this time in the book of Matthew. Well, you say that's not significant because there's only 20 verses after all. But hey, you know what the whole 20 verses are about? Birth. Every single verse is about birth up to this point. I mean, he's used the word begot, 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 begot all through the genealogy. He comes up in verse 16 and talks about of whom was born Jesus. He talks about the birth of Christ in verse 18. He's used birth and begot and all of these words indicating birth process all this time. But he's never used this word right here because the word that's used here in the original language of the Bible is, has a different focus to it. In fact, the word that I'm talking about that's used in verse 21 is used four times only in the book of Matthew and every time it's used in connection with the birth of Jesus. This being one of them. In fact, if you go to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and you search for this word, you'll find it's used five times in the gospel according to Luke. And in Luke's gospel, every single time it's used in connection with the birth of Jesus Christ. That this word has some kind of focus about it, you see. It's an active verb. Oh, you know what an active verb is. It means the subject is intimately involved in the action of the verb. So Mary, of course, is going to be intimately involved. Who's the subject is going to be intimately involved in this. You see, this is in the indicative mood, which has the idea of stating a simple fact. See, he's not describing. He's not trying to explain. He's not trying to interpret. He says, I'm just giving you a fact, brother. But the whole focus of the word has this whole idea of the birth process. Oh, l l let me read you from John's Gospel. Here's a verse. A woman, when she is in labor, ah, oh, that's the word, is in labor. That's how it's translated. A woman, who, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. Soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for, that, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. 
See, the whole focus of the word is on the idea of travail and the birth process and the pain that goes on. In other words, what he's indicating as you read verse 21, and she will bring forth a, not casually, not just kind of happen, brother. Do you know what the focus is? It's a pain and agony, labor, travail. Jesus will be born in a disruptive, laboring, travailing situation. should have known that. Genesis 3.15. It's the first messianic promise, you know. God is on the scene. He's talking to the devil. He says, devil, I want to tell you what's going to happen. Your seed will bruise his heel. Her seed will crush your head. And you know what happened in that first messianic promise? What that was all about, brother? That was all about war is declared. And the seed of the woman, humanity. And the seed of the devil, the imps themselves, are going to go out and there's going to be this overwhelming that what's happening, ladies and gentlemen, is we are at war. Not cold war, hot war. And battle is raging. And redemption of the world will not come about casually, happen chance, accidentally. Whoa, isn't it lucky? Aren't they lucky they got saved? See, it's not, no, you know how the world is going to be changed. You know how this battle is going to be won. It's going to be won in pain and agony because the heel is going to be bruised. See, that was from the very beginning. Oh, you don't have to go very far in the Christmas story to figure that out. Jesus is born. And what's that bring about? Hey, Herod is troubled in chapter 2, uh, verse 6, I think it is. Herod is troubled and all in verse 3. Herod is troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Because you see, the birth of Jesus Christ threatens my kingship. The birth of Jesus Christ upsets my patterns. The birth of Jesus Christ disrupts my little world. Go to Bethlehem, surrounding districts. Hear the wails that are coming from the lips of parents. Ask them what they think about the birth of Jesus Christ. I mean, is it Christmas trees? Is it giving gifts? No, it's my two-year-old son my, and younger. All of them were slaughtered. And where did that come about? There's a war that's raised. See, when God leaps off of his throne and takes on a common name and becomes a part of us and literally involves himself and sets aside everything that distinguishes from himself in order to redeem us, there is a war that is declared and things are disruptive and things take place and patterns can't go on. Things can't be like they were. Ask Mary and Joseph. Hey, they're up in the middle of the night. What are they doing? They're fleeing for their lives to Egypt land. Why did this all happen? How did this all happen? They were just going to get married and have a nice white house with a picket fence. I mean, what's the big deal? Well, Jesus has entered in. And when Jesus enters in, life isn't casual anymore. You don't yawn your way through living when Jesus is born. 
Because God can't leap off of His throne and empty Himself of all at a great, great cost and become one with us for the purpose of redemption and take on our name, our common name, without somehow war being declared and, and disruption taking place and, and trouble being the result and, 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 and patterns have to change and, and things begin to happen. You see, what I'm discovering is the cross of Jesus Christ is not at the end of His life. It's at the beginning, too. See, it's not at His death that the cross takes place. It's at the beginning of His birth that the cross takes place. The cross is, a, is an element, is the key element that's walking through the entirety of His life. And even at His birth, the cross... Oh, this won't sound strange to you. But hey, you know what we're inviting you to? We're not inviting you to peace, joy, tickles up and down your spine. We're not inviting you to happiness, get all your problems solved. You look good too. See, we're not inviting you to good looks. We're, you know what we're inviting you to? Come on! Hey, come and kneel here and embrace a Jesus who will disrupt your life and upset your schedule and mess with your priorities and kind of upset your days and you'll probably have more trouble than you've ever had in your life. Come on, get out of your comfort zone and get in the thick of the fight. If you're looking for a way out, don't embrace this Jesus because he'll put your right slap dab in. See, this is not escape. This is embrace. This is heat of the battle. See, that's what happens when God leaps off of his throne and takes on a, a common name. And joins us at great expense to set aside everything that distinguishes him from us until he becomes one with us for redemptive purposes. It's a crushing name because you see, it just, it disrupts, it, it brings chaos, it brings, it brings upset, it ruins patterns, it, 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 it transforms lives and change is always disruptive. You understand? Again, i got to really tread lightly here because I don't want to upset you so that you won't hear what he's saying to us. But you understand, oh, go to verse 21 again. You see, there's the word name that's used there. And she will bring forth the son and you shall call his name. Interesting word, his name. Oh, it won't be anything to, new to you when I tell you this. That the name bespeaks the person. Always does. I say to you, come sit in this chair. Oh, you can't sit in a chair. Yes, you can. Right there it is. Wait a minute. Chair? Chair. What's a chair? When I say chair, that's, that's sound coming from my lips. You don't sit on a sound coming from my lips. Oh, I can write it down for you. C-H-A-I-R. Chair. But you can't sit on what I put on a piece of paper. What's chair all about? Well, it's that thing over there. See, this is a symbol of that. And we never get mixed up on that, do we? We never get mixed up on that. See, we never separate the symbol from that thing over there. We could have called it whatever you wanted to call it. And, it was still, and you go to other languages and they call it different kinds of words other than chair. But for us, it's chair and there it is and you sit in it and it's all connected. And this is a symbol of that. You understand when we say Jesus, it's not the name Jesus. It's the person. 
And this is a symbol. This name Jesus is a symbol of the, of the person and the character and that he's always... But here's my, here's my concern. See, my overwhelming concern is that maybe in the evangelical church... Oh, wouldn't this be awful? God, forgive me if I've ever done it. I don't want to be a part of that. Wouldn't it be awful if we separated the name from the person? And that we begin to use the the name of Jesus in evangelical circles in, in, in ways that didn't identify his person at all. And we begin to, well, how could you do that? Oh, like a magic charm. Hocus pocus. What is that? Hocus pocus. I don't know. Have you ever seen a hocus pocus? I've never seen one. Have you ever tasted a hocus? No, I've never tasted a hocus pocus either. What is a hocus pocus? I have no idea. It's just some kind of a magical phrase that you use when you want things to happen. Hocus pocus. So see, we begin to use the name Jesus. Hocus pocus. Jesus hocus pocus. Well, what is it? I don't know. Well, who is he? It beats me. And we, se we, we separate him from the person. His name is separated from the person and becomes a magical good luck charm, you see. So every time anything goes wrong, in the name of Jesus, we even pray over it. And in the name of Jesus, I'm not against that. I'm not against that. You understand? Only when you forget his person. I thought maybe I was being too sensitive about that. But I went to the New Testament. And I found out the apostles were very, very, very careful about never doing that. Because you see, they knew that God had leaped off of his throne and he had taken on a common name at great cost and had identified with us to the point that everything that distinguished us from God was removed in order to redeem us. And they were never ever guilty of Jesus' hocus pocus. Oh, let me give you some occasions. For instance... You remember in the Acts story we've been talking about, hey, they've come to the gate beautiful and healed the man who was crippled and the crowds went wild, you understand, and thought that Peter and John were responsible for that. And Peter and John told them absolutely not. They were not responsible for that. And the leaders of Israel were all upset, so they called him in and brought him in before the council. And here's the question that the leaders of Israel asked Peter and John. By what name did you do this? Oh, here's the answer. Listen to this. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth... Stop right there. Oh, you mean by the hocus-pocus Jesus? No, no. I'm talking about the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Then listen to this. Whom you crucified. That's the one I'm talking about. Whom God raised from the dead. That's the person I'm talking about. This is not just some hocus-pocus name we're using. Just just magic term thing. Hey, I'm talking about this person. I'm talking about this person of Jesus Christ that you crucified. And the one that God raised from the dead. By him, this man stands here before you whole. Woo! I love that. Because this is not just a name that I quote and get things done. This is the person who is actively involved doing. In fact, in that same identical section, he goes on to give this verse that you know quite well. We've quoted it often. It says, nor is there salvation in any other person. 
any other. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Are we saved by a name? No, not a name on a paper. Not, not a symbol. Not a hocus pocus. We're saved not by a name. We're saved by the name that identifies the person. Paul was careful about this. Listen to this. He said, Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Well, God's given him an exalted name. No, didn't you get that? Let me read it for you again. God also has highly exalted him. And because he is exalted, guess what? His name is exalted. Because the exaltation of his name comes from the exaltation of the person. And there is no separation between the name and the person in the mind of the Apostle Paul. Phenomenal concept. But you see... I'm much more comfortable with the hocus-pocus Jesus because I can control that. See, I can see something that's wrong in my life and hocus-pocus Jesus, hey, that takes care of that. And, and, and I can see that I have a physical need and I can hocus-pocus Jesus and that takes care of that. And i got a problem and this is hocus-pocus on my finances. Hocus-pocus Jesus on my finances and that takes care of that. See, I, I'm comfortable with that. But when you identify the name with the person and then you begin to pray over my sickness, lo and behold, you know what that does? That's not hocus pocus Jesus. Woo, I'm well. You know what that does? When I pray the name of Jesus connected with his person, that brings the living reality of this Jesus right slap dab in the midst of my sickness, right slap dab in the midst of my life. And he always changes things. See, and I don't want to change. I just want magic wand over my head stuff. See, I, I just want to feel better. I don't want to roll up my sleeves and pour my life out. So if you just hocus pocus Jesus, I can feel better. But if you get the name of Jesus, the person involved, lo and behold, he may have me using all my energy to pour my life out for my world. And I don't think I'm really interested in that. God leaped off of his throne. And took on a common name. A common name. Common. At great cost. Identifying with us to the point that everything that made him different from us was set aside to the point that he joined us in our sin and became our sin to bear it for us on a cross. And that disrupts, that upsets, that changes. That doesn't take you out, that puts you in. That doesn't escape, that somehow puts you in the middle of the war and the battle. And the whole deal is all about, hey, we're not inviting you to ease and comfort and 
and roll up your sleeves and relax. We're, we're inviting you, ladies and gentlemen, to the war. We're inviting you to get slap dab in the middle of the person of Jesus until he disrupts your whole life. He upsets your career. He bothers your family life, what you watch on TV, how you talk to each other. He, he bothers my attitudes. He begins to make changes in the way I see things and, and, and upsets my schedules. And, 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 he, and I have more problems than I've ever had before. And he bothers my finances. And I have to quit griping about it too. Because he's doing his work in my life. Isn't holiness a strange kind of Christianity? Because I just wanted to skip, hop, jump, bump my head once there, twice down there, have God wave magic wands over my head, and whoa, I do feel better. Now you're talking to me about relationship with the person. And whenever he is born in you, you can be rest assured that what happened 2,000 years ago is going to be happen, is going to begin to happen again. Brace yourself. Because when Jesus becomes active in the life, God can't leap off of his throne, take on a common name, empty himself of all that distinguishes him from us, join us to the point of redemption without somehow his name identifying with his person, literally upheaval, change. Well, I'll tell you, preacher, that's good truth for those young married couples. They're going to have a lot of problems. It's for senior adults. Wouldn't it be something to embrace Jesus as a senior adult in a new way and find your life shaken at its core? Would you risk that? Find your patterns being disrupted? Your schedule's upset? Or do we want to just go back to hocus pocus Jesus? Jesus, in a new way, I'm aware when I said that your person is involved. We don't just sing about a name. We don't just sing about a title. We're not just talking about letters. We're not just talking about a word here. Jesus, it's you. Living, functioning, moving, reality, Jesus. It takes all the courage I can muster, Jesus. But would you embrace my life with your person? disrupt me upset my patterns blow apart my value structure get in the middle of my relationships so I don't feel comfortable with it anymore And I realize tonight when I slip out of my seat and I kneel at this altar of prayer and I embrace you, the living person, I'm embracing the war. 
I'm embracing the conflict. I'm not embracing ease, comfortable. Put me in the thick of it, Jesus. And please, oh God, help me to quit griping. I'm not asking you tonight for joy. I'm not asking you tonight for peace. I'm not asking you tonight for comfortable, uh, to be comfortable. I'm not asking you tonight for, for happiness. I'm not asking you tonight for any... I'm asking you tonight for yourself. And Jesus, if you want me in a dungeon cell and chop off my head so I can lay down a blood pavement for you to walk over the back of my life to plant a cross in this community, do it. I'm not asking for joy and peace and ease. I'm asking for you, purpose, meaning, direction. I'm asking you to pull me in to the eternal plan and change anything about me that would hinder that. Heads are bowed. Would you embrace Jesus like that? Would you, would you kneel at this altar tonight? Not, not for magic wand, not for hocus pocus Jesus. Would you, would you kneel tonight to embrace the Jesus who disrupts, upsets, Would you risk the conflict that comes with his presence? Would you step out of the ease from where you are? Symbolized by the padded pew you sit on. And would you embrace his conflict? And maybe some of us here tonight are in the midst of overwhelming conflict. And we've been trying to follow this person of Jesus. And we can't figure out what's going on. Oh, don't you know? He's working a plan. Would you quit fighting it? Would you embrace it? Would you quit griping about it? Would you cling to him the tighter and find direction in the midst of the conflict? I want to kneel tonight. I want this Jesus with all of his conflict in my life. Want to join me? Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 92 for episode number 92. Now, next week, we're going to listen to part two of this little sermon series on verse 21 of Matthew, talking about the purpose of the name of Jesus. So until then, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.